Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with two extraordinary scholars. Eric Conway, who's from Caltech and does history of science and technology, and Naomi Oreskes, who is at Harvard University. They've written books in the past, a very powerful one, which I would encourage everyone to read. It's called Merchants of Doubt. Uh, they've also talked about Western civilization in the future in another book. And But the book right now, and it's creating a big stir among all of my colleagues and friends, people like Gus Speth, people who've been on this podcast, Gus Speth, Nancy McLean, and others are all stepping forward and... Uh, I think, how would he say, let's ring the bell and uh, we'll have a nice conversation today. Their new book is called The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe the Government and Loathe the Free Market. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, so let's uh, begin. I'll say, Eric, uh, I'll start with you, but either of you can can chime in. What inspired you to write this book? You've made very powerful points. I mentioned Merchants of Doubt, nothing, but what brought this one to the surface right now? Well, so when when we wrote Merchants of Doubt, you know, that book was basically about four physicists who spent their retirement years um, helping to cast doubt on a variety of environmental problems. And we ended that book um, with an argument that what they were motivated by was market fundamentalism. Um, they were they were cold warriors who who had grown to loathe the government that that they had served um, and worked in um, and and worked to instead constrain it. Um, under the argument that 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 markets were a superior form of, of organizing economic life, um, that markets were the only way to protect political freedom, and that concerned them. So the big myth, when we we sat down to think about what do we do next, um, we we decided we should tell the history of market fundamentalism, um, and so that's what we've tried to do in our our admittedly rather big and expansive uh, the big myth. Yeah, no, that's just right. I mean, it was it's really an attempt to understand the history of an ideology, an idea that's been really powerful, not just among climate change deniers, but among Americans broadly, and to understand why people have come to hold this set of views when the facts of history and many of the facts of economics don't actually support them. Well, I think, you know, in uh, our work at INET, we've had the impression that people suggest that when a free market capitalism is embedded in a democracy, it's morally legitimate. But some of our scholars, Tom Ferguson, our research director in particular, said there's too many markets. When you're spending a lot of money on campaign contributions, when you're spending a lot of money on university endowments and they pick who the experts are, or when commercial media is 
uh, receiving advertising revenue, they may decide what to talk about and what to silence based on their, so that the financial incentives are taking that, which you might call idealistic sense of what a democracy does and how it governs. And I think your work really plays powerfully into that. Uh, I often cite the Bob Dylan song, uh, One Too Many Mornings, and I change it to One Too Many Markets. And uh, I often t refer people to the Lewis Powell memo that was provided to the uh, Chamber of Commerce before he became a C Supreme Court justice about how, why are they putting up with all of this turmoil from the 60s and the civil rights movement? They can influence the universities. and. Uh, so I see those pathways uh, we might call is, is consistent with the work that you're offering. Uh, let's start through the book. There's a various themes, foundations, the marketing, the mainstream, and beyond the myth are the four segments of the book. But let's go, uh, let's talk, how do I say, talk our way through the story. What, what is the section foundations illuminating for us? So the book is a long durée book. It tries to explain the arc of market fundamentalism, where it comes from, how it was supported and sustained and propagandized by a diverse group of business interests throughout the 20th century, and then brought into mainstream American politics by Ronald Reagan. So we begin the story with a set of uh, discussions, a set of arguments that took place in the early 20th century about market failure about the reality that markets were not actually serving the American people well and in the way we needed. And those market failures were involved a number of different things. And we focused in the early part of the book on three major market failures. So one is the problem of child labor, that children as young as two years old are working in textile mills here in Massachusetts, in factories and mines across this country. And many people thought that was not a good thing, that children should not be working in factories, children should be in school. But the business community fought back against that, saying that it was the prerogative of the owner of the factory, the owner of the mill, or of the father, and there's a patriarchal and gendered quality to this argument, um, and that the government should not interfere with the rights, the privileges, the freedom, and the prerogatives of factory owners and fathers. And so in that argument, we begin to see the kernel of the central or one of the central tenets of market fundamentalism was this, this claim that if you allow the government to step in to redress market failure, even a serious market failure, it undermines freedom. And so trying to link capitalism and freedom, this is a central part of this argument. A second place we see the argument taking place is in debates over workman's compensation. Today, most Americans take workmen's compensation for granted. We assume that if we get injured or killed on the job, that we will receive compensation or our survivors. But that was not always the case. In the early 20th century, one in 1,000 workers was killed or seriously injured on the job every single year. That would be the equivalent of 1.5 million people today. And so again, a big debate developed about, well, should the government intervene to do something about this? It was such a big problem. It actually had a name. It was called the accident crisis. So people experienced this as a crisis. But again, the business community, by and large, fought back and said, it's not for the government to tell a factory owner how to run his factory. And then the third place we see this has to do with electricity, which in some ways is the most conspicuous market failure of all. Because we like to believe that if people want something, if people need something, then the private sector will provide it to them. And electricity was something that people really liked. 
uh, the rhetoric around electricity in the early 20th century is just gushing about how fantastic, what an incredible advance it is to have electricity in people's homes, to light up their lives, quite literally. Um, but the private sector was not providing electricity to rural customers because they claimed it was too expensive to run lines and they wouldn't make sufficient profits. And they claimed that it couldn't be done at a profit. Again, this led to a big debate. Well, rural customers wanted electricity, and many of them were farmers who people argued deserved it, that they really deserved to have their lives improved. And again, a big fight. And here's where, so in all these arguments, we see the beginning of this argument about capitalism and freedom being made. But here's where we see it goes really nasty, because the industry led by their trade organization, the National Electric Light Association, launches a massive propaganda campaign. Uh, and it's really a kind of prequel to Merchants of Doubt. Uh, they hire experts, basically experts for hire to write reports claiming that private electricity is working fine, uh, even though it's not, claiming that when the government steps in, it's more expensive, even though the evidence showed that it was not. Um, propagandizing people through lecture series, through um, uh, press releases to journalists, and the most pernicious of all, a campaign to rewrite American textbooks, to pay academics to rewrite textbooks, to promote free market capitalism and the argument that government involvement in the marketplace threatens personal freedom. Eric? Nope, Neil is where I was going to go to if, if, if anything <laughs> yeah, so needed added like because that. the Neela story is is really fantastic. The National like Association story because it shows um, it shows the involvement of in in industry of trying to make sure that the the public school system tells their story. You mentioned at the outset that Ronald Reagan played a, a, a large role in the what you might call acceleration of this type of thinking or this type of promotion. Can you tell me a little bit about why you underscore that and, and what was what was taking place in America at the time he came into power or what role he played? Do you want me to take that, Eric, since I wrote most of the Reagan chapter and then I'll give you the next one? So one of the challenges in this book is to explain how an argument that is false that is heavily based on propaganda, um, and that is clearly self-serving, nevertheless somehow succeeds in persuading millions of Americans of its truth. And what we show is that in the first part of the book, the whole section we call Foundations, the industry doesn't really succeed. For example, during the New Deal, the federal government does step into electricity markets and does uh, build the rural electrification uh, administration to de deliver electricity to rural Americans. So they don't really win the argument for the whole first half of the 20th century, but they don't give up. And so after World War II, they do a number of things. And one of the key parts of the story is to explain how they begin to succeed and who begins to work for them as a messenger. And a key part of the answer to that question is Ronald Reagan. So many Americans know that before Reagan became a politician, he was a Hollywood actor. He had starred in a bunch of B-grade movies, some of them with chimpanzees. Um, but most people don't know how he segued from being a sort of second-rate actor to being one of the most successful politicians of the 20th century. And a large part of the answer to that has to do with his job at the General Electric Corporation. 
So in the late 1950s, Reagan goes to work for GE. GE had a television show called General Electric Theater, which they hired him to host. And each week, this television show, which was extremely successful, it was one of the three most successful television programs in the late 1950s, presented didactic stories of individual success, of people pulling themselves up by their bootstrap and succeeding by dint of their own hard work, um, of boys learning to be a man by standing on their own two feet. And Ronald Reagan was the host of the series. So he would introduce the show each week and at the end, thank everyone for watching. And so through this, his voice, his face was beamed into millions and millions of American homes every week for several years. So he became one of the most well-known people in the United States at that time. But in addition, hosting GE Theater was only half his job. The other half was serving as a public spokesperson for GE. And he went on the lecture circuit, particularly in GE communities, going to GE factories, manufacturing plants, um, giving talks in schools, in communities where there was a GE factory, doing a dinner at the Rotary or the Lions Club. And then all of this would be covered in GE publications. So GE had a whole set of magazines and newsletters where they would would feature Reagan's speeches, and then these would be distributed broadly in GE communities. And in doing this work, he also was given a reading list. So GE, GE had a massive propaganda campaign, an internal campaign designed to persuade its managers and its workers of the virtues of free enterprise and also deeply, deeply anti-union to try to persuade GE workers not to join unions. And they engaged in a lot of union-busting tactics for which they actually um, were cited by the National Labor Relations Board. So Reagan becomes part of this deeply anti-government, deeply anti-union ideology at General Electric, and he becomes the spokesman, the public spokesman for those views. And what we see is that by the time he finishes his tenure at GE, he now has accepted those views. Um, And he comes out of GE with one, so he comes out with a completely transformed ideology. Having previously been a pro-union Democrat, he comes out an anti-union, anti-government Republican. But he also leaves GE with one other really crucial resource, and that's a set of backers, of wealthy corporate backers who finance his campaign for governor in California and also help him hire a kind of kitchen cabinet, a team of experts who then advise him on a whole set of issues that he previously knew nothing about. And this enables him to make this transition from second-rate actor to first-rate politician. So Eric, uh, what concerns me a little bit is I hear this, which you might call side-by-side of what is freedom, and freedom is only eligible when it goes through a market system, as if the market system is going to create wonderful things and you can't get in its way. Uh, I get a little unnerved. I lived in Connecticut at the time of Sandy Hook, where the freedom to have a gun does not move alongside the freedom not to be shot by someone else. It just, it seems like we're, uh, how do they say, creating a subset of the freedoms. We're not listening to what was it, Isaiah Berlin, the two types of liberty. Uh, how, did, how do we, uh, what you might call, inoculate society from this one-sided way of seeing what freedom is? Is there is there a pathway you envision? I hate it when historians are asked for the solution to the problem because that <laughs> is not, I don't have a crystal ball for that. Um, and I, I, 
I wish there were some way I could convince my my fellow Americans that you know that all of these problems are issues of conflicting freedoms, um, and what we seem to have at the moment is a pathological information environment almost that only credits one set of freedoms and and does and promotes them in, in a very extreme way um, without without any discussion of the freedoms that are being suppressed by over exaggeration of of as we were just talking about gun ownership right the freedom to leave free of fear of the the all the all the all of the gun people um, is not a freedom I guess in the United States at the moment at least it's not one we talk about um, and and what's the solution to that well a more responsible media that is not um, so deeply invested in in just simply neutrality in the in the both sidesism we see all the time um, but that would require them to take sides and they're really allergic to that um, and a bigger, and another thing I don't have any idea of how to bring about is I actually think a lot of this stems back to both the two-party system and you mentioned earlier about the privately financed aspect of the, the political system because it allows certain wealthy groups greater access to the media um, to get their stories and their preferred liberties promoted um, to the detriment of, of those without the resources. One of the concerns that I experience from many of my guests, and uh, I'll cite one of my recent podcasts was with uh, the Financial Times writer, Martin Wolf, who's written a book recently called The Crisis of Economic, or Democratic Capitalism, excuse me. And, uh, and what bothers me is, and Martin underscores this, when there is a constant barrage of indoctrination and it doesn't feel like the world you live in people become alienated and become despondent and then what i would say is uh, for instance i'll, I'll cite david sirota and uh, alex gibney made a podcast on audible it's called meltdown and it wasn't about the meltdown of the financial markets. It was about when they, as Joe Stiglitz said, paid the polluters and we bailed out the people who made the mess. The despondency, Occupy on the left, mm -hmm. Tea Party on the right, Repub House shifting to Republican, Senate going Republican, Donald Trump being elected. Trump was, I'm from Michigan, Trump was marketing that the system is rigged and there's despair. And I guess what I would say is the, he, he may have seduced and abandoned people once he got to job as president, but that despair, or what I will call Donald Trump's candidacy, is a symptom of the kind of things you're diagnosing where things are off course. And I think it's very dangerous when one looks at what you might call the history of societal breakdown and authoritarian response we could go from what you might call bad marketing and neglect to something even more violent if we're not careful. That's why I asked the question, how do we restore, how do we bring back the balance that we need? It's haunting to me to read Franklin Delano Roosevelt speeches or listen to some of his uh, 
radio broadcasts because they had so much balance and it's almost like politicians. Though I'll, I'll give Joe Biden a little credit. You can critique me, but his latest State of the Union dress, many people say, how are we going to practice what we preach? But at least he preached some things that we needed as a society. But <clears throat> you see, like you mentioned Reagan and you see these things. What issues right now haunt you? What is most off course and most dangerous for society in, in either of your views? Well, you know, we, we came to this book because of our work on climate change and climate change denial, because that's where all of these issues really came to the fore, that people in the private sector and climate change deniers, I mean, why were they denying climate change? Well, as, as Eric explained earlier in the discussion, because they were afraid that if the government became involved in fixing this giant market failure, and it is a giant market failure, that you know, we would be on a slippery slope to totalitarianism. And so we wanted to better understand why anyone would think that because most slippery slope arguments are kind of silly because we're grownups, we can make decisions, we can make choices. Um, but we also saw that it was a much bigger question. And so in this book, one of the things we did was deliberately try to background the climate change question because we didn't want think that people to think this was a book about climate change because it's not. It's a book about a kind of rainy ideology that has foregrounded the primacy of economic freedom at the expense of everything else. So the freedom to buy and sell guns trumps the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? And to partly answer your previous question, I think we have tremendous resources in American culture to recapture the notion that economic freedom is one freedom and probably not even the most important one. I mean, we stress this in the book. It's not something that the founding fathers actually really stressed. I mean, property obviously is part of the story, but it wasn't their main concern. Part of what the market fundamentalists have done is to flip the script, to put economic freedom on top and to say that that has to have primacy and that has to trump everything else. And that's where we get a society where people can pollute with impunity, run dangerous trains that wreck and destroy, you know, livestock and crops and possibly people's health. Um, so there's a whole set of issues that arise then from inadequate governance, inadequate regulation. And part of what we're trying to do in this book is to open up a new conversation to say, look, the balance is off here. We're not calling for a communist uh, revolution. We're calling for a kind of rebalancing of our society to better accept what Eric just said, these are really questions of competing freedoms. And that's an old, old question. People have been worrying about that, probably going back to Plato. But how do we address them? And the balance is way, way off in American society today. And we think our book partly explains why it's off, because we have been bombarded. We've been saturated with this message of economic freedom at the expense of a lot of other really important considerations. Right. So, so Robert, you you said one thing that struck my mind, and that is that, um, that there's there's this concern with democratic capitalism. So in that balancing, I think that what we're calling for is more of the emphasis on the democratic over the the capitalist, because it's the de democratic portion of this that's really failing under the onslaught of of propaganda. And also, crucially, thanks for raising that, Eric. That. The propagandistic argument is that you have to protect capitalism to protect freedom and democracy. But what we're seeing is that that's not true, right? That capitalism run amok is a threat to democracy for precisely the reasons you just said, Robert. When there's too much concentration of wealth 
in too few hands, that has a corrupting force. And of course, that shouldn't come as a surprising argument. That's something that people recognize in the late 19th century. We say this in the book. One of the reasons that the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed, it was passed primarily to protect competition in the marketplace and therefore protect market-based capitalism. But it was also passed because people recognized that the massive concentration of wealth in the hands of a few was bad for democracy. And to me, one of the most interesting things we write about in the book was something that Eric found, which was how um, Robert Bork, who played a big role in promoting the idea that courts should not enforce the Sherman and Clayton antitrust statutes, he writes a paper about the Sherman Antitrust Act, which is incorrect, in which he misrepresents the intention of that act and even misrepresents what Sherman himself, the author of the act, said about it. Now, whether he did that because he was stupid, lazy, or dishonest, we leave that to the readers to decide for themselves. But it's pretty telling that one of the key architects of the anti-antitrust argument in our lifetimes misrepresented what that statute was designed to do historically. In, uh, I guess it's, how I say, part of the side effect of being a father. I have a son who's involved in venture capital in his mid-30s, and he and his cohort and I often talk, and they are which we we'll call uh, wanting to be protective of their right to innovate in a digital world. But I see this is a dilemma again because I see some of these big platforms and what the Danish scholar Vincent Hendricks calls the info storms and the monopolistic control and so forth. And so, if you will, if Silicon Valley has unrestricted freedom, they would argue that it's propelling creativity, innovation, and that rising tide will raise all boats. Others are saying we're not thinking about which you might call the externalities and the public good nature of these platforms. And as a result, people are doing wealth extraction platforms, not something that's of broader interest. You're, Eric, you're affiliated with Caltech. You're, you're much closer to ground zero than I am in all of this. What would you tell my son and his colleagues uh, about the freedom of technological R&D and, and implementation? Well, it has nothing to do with Caltech, but I'd simply point out that that there's actually not a great deal of, at least not visible, um, what do I want to say, change or innovation going on, in, not, not really in social media, right? Facebook has been allowed to essentially buy up and eliminate any competition that might have been a better service. Um, and so that's that's corporate freedom, but it's not one that that, that benefits innovation in any kind of meaningful way. Um, and and yet that is the Silicon Valley ideology is that we should allow that to exist, whereas the antitrust mentality would be that that we shouldn't have one or two companies in that completely dominate um, a, a sector, industrial sector or information sector, or et cetera, because there will be no competition. Um, and without competition, you don't get the most, you don't have the greatest efficiency. You don't, 
get future innovations because big companies are notoriously less innovative than small ones, um, etc. So I don't think that that unlimited freedom argument actually works the way way many of the social uh, media folks, the Silicon Valley folks, think it does. You know, since uh, there's a tension also, I, I do a lot of international work, and I want to come back to this with regard to climate change in a moment. But in the digital realm, particularly when I've been in Asian countries, they say, they tell me, watch the movie The Social Dilemma in America, because they say they provide you a service, but you are the product. And when they talk about what I say, commercial platforms, like an Amazon.com, something like the leadership in the Chinese government, and this is years ago that they were talking like this, not just in recent months with all the tensions between U.S. and China. They'd say, we're not going to allow you a window in to build an intelligence agency along that is what I call cohabitation with your uh, platform for commerce. And so they want to control their own base. The Europeans have a different view of digital things than either the Americans or the Chinese who are arm wrestling over who gets to be the founder slash controller. And so I see what you might call the pervasiveness of these, we don't call multidimensional externalities in the digital world, requiring what I would say a lot more wisdom than has been set at the table, uh, though I'll give my son Nicholas some credit. He wrote a book called Modern Monopolies and talked about these challenges in relation to, say, the oil steel companies of the earlier monopolies. But uh, at any rate, uh, going towards climate change again, you talked about what I will call, economists will call the pervasiveness of externalities, and the fossil fuel companies don't want to acknowledge that. And then you talk about how the government might play that role of creating the balance. But what do we do in the era of globalization where companies can go to different places and the, what you might call the sovereignty of any given country, particularly with regard to climate change when we're talking about cumulative planetary uh, carbon uh, how do How do we even imagine governing in a, in a globalization world, where climate can, how would I say, carbon emissions in Africa can hurt people in Cincinnati or vice versa. How do we put this all together? How do we, how do I say, with the kind of propagandistic uh, preaching that your book talks about, how, how in climate can we rise above? We don't really like to talk about the government because in a way that's part of the rhetoric that the people we study have created, that there's the government on one side and there's the market on the other side. And we want to argue that that's a false dichotomy, that there are markets, many different kinds of markets. They function in many different ways. Some markets function very well. I mean, I really love this very cool and pretty green water bottle that I just bought on sale. Um, so, you know, sometimes markets are great. They provide people with goods and services that they want at competitive pricing. That's capitalism working as it should. But sometimes markets fail. They create big external costs. They hurt people. They exploit workers. They wreck the environment. They destroy biodiversity. And when that happens, then you need 
solutions. And those solutions, I think I like, I prefer to use the word governance to emphasize that those solutions can operate on many different levels. So it could be international governance. And again, a lot of people, you know, the kind of people we study are very hostile to international governance because they see it as a threat to freedom. And it could be, you know, we want to grant that, that, that there's a risk there. But if you look at the solution to the ozone hole that we wrote about in Merchants of Doubt, that was successful international governance. Countries of the world got together, agreed to ban the chemicals that were causing the ozone hole, and it worked. Uh, I mean, sadly, we have some new problems. I was just reading how the Australian wildfires are hurting, damaging the ozone layer. So this is sad because it's how climate change ramifies into lots of other things. But the important point is that we have a successful model for global governance in the case of the ozone hole. But we wouldn't argue that international governance is necessarily the solution for all problems. So it might be that the federal government should take a stronger stand on an issue like, you know, the reckless use of firearms in the United States, or it could be states. I mean, a lot of climate action can take place on the state level or even cities. One mistake that I think some people in the climate space has made, and maybe it comes out of the early development of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was modeled after the ozone uh, protocol. So we understand historically why that seemed like a good idea at the time. But the reality is that most economic activity takes place in cities. And most cities are progressive, right? I mean, the red-blue split in the United States is not really a split between red states and blue states, even that's how we always talk about it. It's actually a split between rural and rural. And even if you go to a very conservative state like Montana or even Utah, the cities are progressive and democratic. And that's where most economic activity place, takes place, which is where most carbon pollution is generated. So if you could mobilize cities to act on climate change, even through, say, an urban carbon pricing system or other solutions, you could remedy a big part of the climate problem. And then there's corporate governance. And one of the things that's been so interesting to me in the last couple of years is how we have seen the private sector stepping up to the plate with a deeper, more thoughtful discussion of ESG, right? The environmental, social, and governance principles. And what is the the right-wing sector, the people we write about, what do they think of that? You might think they would embrace it because after all, it's a market-based private sector solution but no, they are all over trying to block it. They can't even bear the idea of governance like that, which I think kind of gives the game away that it's not actually a principled position about market-based mechanisms. It's actually an attempt to protect the prerogatives of big polluters. One of the, um, how we say, recent challenges is the COVID-19 experience. We've seen a lot of work at INET uh, on where did the research for the vaccines and stuff come from and largely paid for by the taxpayers? What's happening in the collaboration, cooperation between countries? What's happening in the dissemination to people throughout the, which you might call wealth or income distribution? Uh, how are you seeing the COVID challenge in relation to the work you've done? And the, how do you say, difference between marketing and public health, marketing for profit versus public health, I guess is the dichotomy I would bring. What, what has been your uh, awareness or observation with regard to that challenge in that environment? Well, I guess I have to say, I haven't paid 
as much or enough attention really to the international aspects of it, um, largely due to lack of lack of good information. Um, I was when the vaccines first became available. I was pleased to see the administration not initially taking, um, you know, the free market everybody will just ask for these approach. Rather, they really pushed them out into um, here in California. And we had these large scale um, vaccination clinics isn't even the word, right? We they, take over parking lots at the, you know, the Great Western Forum and others so forth for, for you know, to process thousands and thousands of people. It wasn't a market approach at all. It was a, it was a, it was a mobilization approach, right? The, the idea of it's kind of like wartime mobilization to solve this problem. Um, and of course, since then, we've stopped doing it and they've gone back to distributing it through private means, right? Mostly you get vaccinated now at Rite Aid or CVS or Walgreens or, or one of those. Um, and the state has largely withdrawn from that. Um, and I, think that's partly normalization. They wanted to get away from the emergency measures and, and to some degree that makes sense. Um, what I what I don't I know there's also been some efforts by I think it's Moderna um, to remove the federal federal research scientists from patents in order to to stake a free and clear um, legal and financial claim um, in order to I guess that that that's intended to to maximize their their profits on the vaccines, um, but that's disturbing because it, you know, as as you said earlier, Robert, the vaccines were largely developed on federal dimes anyway. Um, even if those federal dimes and dollars went to private manufacturers um, in order to, you know, solve a a, a world emergency, Naomi. Yeah, I think one thing I would add is. I mean, I think what's good about the COVID story, when we see the emergence of the vaccines from Moderna, Pfizer, BioNTech, in a way, it's a good model of a public-private partnership because the private sector does have the capacity to mobilize, distribute market in a way that would be hard for the federal government to do. And that's a good thing. But if you think about the scientific basis for those vaccinations, particularly the messenger RNA vaccines, which are developing some pretty new um, technologies uh, based on a deep scientific understanding of how, how RNA works in our bodies. That scientific foundation is based on decades of fundamental research, most of which was financed by the U.S. federal government and also by federal governments uh, in Europe and elsewhere. So without that scientific foundation, there's no way that those corporations would have been able to produce, manufacture, and distribute those vaccines so quickly. So again, it's not an argument against the market. It's an argument for different roles that the markets and governance need to play. And without that scientific basis, though, there's no way Moderna and Pfizer and these other companies could have done what they did. And that you know, gets back to the question about innovation. One of the things that drives me and Eric most nuts about Silicon Valley, and I don't know if they're hypocritical liars or just ignorant of their own history, but when all these Silicon Valley people, especially you know someone like Peter Thiel, right, go on and on about the free market, but the very foundation for the existence of Silicon Valley was government-funded research. And if, if you go back to, say, Hewlett-Packard, some of the early Silicon Valley companies, so much of that research came out of stuff that was funded during World War II by the U.S. federal government, um, huge amounts of grants and contracts that flowed to uh, Stanford, which then led to Hewlett-Packard being spun off 
uh, from Stanford. And then, of course, the internet. We wouldn't be talking to each other today on this platform if we didn't have the internet. And Silicon Valley didn't invent the internet. Scientists and engineers funded by the U.S. government did that. The uh, energy that is uh, surrounding all of these questions, I guess if I were to say, what would an economist summarize our conversation by saying, is that externalities are pervasive. They're not a special case. You look at some textbooks and they're like a little part of chapter 37 as opposed to front and center. And uh, I, I think that it's very, very haunting right now because they're hiding, the externalities are so pervasive, they're hiding in plain sight. They're not really hiding, I'm saying they're being masked through these other types of arguments. Uh, as you, I think, if I could just jump in, I think that's please. exactly right. And really, it's as the saying goes in Silicon Valley, it's a feature, not a bug. And so part of, I think, what we would hope that our book would do would be to help facilitate a bigger conversation about that, that externalities, market failures are part of capitalism. And especially for the people who want to defend capitalism, it's essential to figure out, well, how do we really look at that more closely and figure out better mechanisms to address the external costs of capitalism? If I was a young, brilliant, potential billionaire right now, I would want to abide by what you just suggested, because I think the biggest risk to someone who's really creative is that the backlash from a despondent public we're having people talking about seceding from the union, even presidential candidates suggesting that might be a good thing. And if that were to unfold, the disintegration of the institutions we have built and so forth would set existing billionaires, but potential billionaires back quite profoundly. And I think having a sustainable platform is what you might call compliments with an E the genius that a creative individual might be able to develop on behalf of his wallet and society at the same time. Or her wallet. Yeah, her. That's right. That's right. Very definitely. I got three daughters and one son, so three-fourths of my votes are uh, on, on that side. Um, Eric, uh, where haven't we gone in the book that you'd like to underscore? What uh, what makes sense? Oh my! Well, I guess I guess I should should promote the one sound idea I, ha I had in in, in in effort, and that was um, I like to talk about um, spiritual mobilization in the '30s and the way it began to to try to bring. Um, free market capitalist ideas into the clergy, into American clergy. So, so that the message would be reinforced every Sunday in church. Um, and that's a camp effort that goes on into the fifties. It, it's brought into both um, the, the liberal Protestant churches, as well as the Catholic churches um, with the help of, of the sun oil president, J Howard Pugh, who becomes a um, major mover and shaker in conservative politics and after World War II. Um, and we tell that story because also partly to uh, underscore why we like to use the term market fundamentalism, because it it's intended to have kind of a religious valence um, 
and in, in order to ensure um, it doesn't, it's not questioned, right? The, the essence of faith is that you don't question it. Um, the essence of faith in markets is that we shouldn't question it. And, and they had that in mind as they are erecting this framework of, in, of, of, of organizations and institutions to, to ensure American clergy continue to echo the free market mantra. I uh, spent several years as an adjunct professor at the Union Theological Seminary teaching, teaching a course called Economics and Theology. And uh, it's very interesting to me what you're talking about there because what I guess, and I, how do I say, you teach to learn. I learned a lot from these graduate students. And what they kept saying to me is, in the modern world, people talk as though the market is a deity. The market is a tool. It is a means to social outcome and satisfaction that can be positive. But it's not, how would I say, uh, it's not a deity. You don't turn society inside out to serve the market. The market is there to serve the people and the social goals. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And that that's that's a big that's a major point people I, we want people to take out of the book. Um, there, there was an effort by, by, by James Fifield who ran spiritual mobilization to set the market above society, outside society, so that it would become, so that it would be seen as kind of a deity. Um, and, and, and again, so that it wouldn't be questioned. It, it, it they didn't want it presented as a, a tool, a social tool, because because tools are human constructs and we make them. But their Fifield's goal, spiritual mobilization's goal, was to present um, the market as de de descending from God, not from man. That was the whole point of it. Um, and and so your your students figured out that that was not right. Um, but I'm not surprised it's a union either, because union was one of the big critics of what Fifield was doing. Well, the uh, I mentioned at the outset when we were talking uh, the Bob Dylan song, One Too Many Mornings. I thought I would rebrand it as One Too Many Markets, where the market for social vision and goals, at least I don't mind people being in competitive discourse, but if it's dominant, for financial reasons rather than inspiring, it's it's uh, potentially quite dangerous. But Dylan's last verse in One Too Many Mornings I thought was worth uh, bringing to you. It's a restless, hungry feeling that don't mean no one no good. When everything I'm saying, you can say it just as good. You're right from your side, I'm right from mine. We're both just one too many mornings and a thousand miles behind. And this zany lyric of Dylan was just about social confusion and the fomenting of social confusion. And I want to thank you because I believe that you and Naomi, who had to leave uh, your co-author, are really raising things, hopefully making people a little uncomfortable with what they, what you might call abide by or unquestionably accept. 
because I think we are at a critical juncture in our society now, and we have to re-envision what the North Star looks like and what, what we're pursuing. But thank you for being here today, Eric, and uh, thank you along with not only for being here, but, but thank you also for writing this extraordinary and challenging book. Well, thanks for having us. It's been great. To be continued, another chapter. I'm sure there'll be plenty of uh, enthusiasm from my Young Scholars Initiative to have you come be a lecture to their roughly 20,000 people around the world. Uh, after they watch this podcast, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll be invited to be keynotes at one of their big gatherings. So, okay. Anyway, Sounds anyway. like fun. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for your time. You too. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it. And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it. And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking. But I'll know my song well before I start singing.